are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are worthy of all those things and so much more. You as creator, of, as sustainer, as redeemer, as the God of the universe and yet friend of sinners, Father, you are worthy to be praised with everything that we are. Father, as we continue to confess, we readily come to you ready to confess that we have not praised you with all that we are this week. Father, in fact, we have grumbled against you. We have actually raised a fist at your sovereignty We've cursed things that you have blessed. We've resisted what you are trying to do in us and through us. Father, we've been found wanting in terms of our own righteousness that grants us access before you, and yet you in your righteousness have already executed justice and righteousness on our behalf. And so, Father, as much as we confess our sins, we confess Jesus even more, that where there is sin, grace much more abounds for us. That, yes, there is sin, and yes, there is unrighteousness, but, Father, your mercy is so much more. So, Father, tonight, continue to meet us, even in our darkness, even in our brokenness, Allow us to know the truth about ourselves, but, oh, Father, give us even more of Jesus. Father, I pray tonight for, specifically, our single folks here tonight. Father, I pray that you would, that you would meet with them in a special way tonight. Allow them to know and to believe that you are a God who delights in them. You are a God who takes pleasure in them and that all of their satisfaction can fully be held up in you, that they can, they can risk all of this world's joys and pleasures and put every single amount of hope and dream in you, and Father, they would be just fine. I pray that you would fill their hearts tonight. I pray that you would allow them to see only Jesus and allow them to be filled and allow them to minister Allow them to serve in effective ways, in ways that bears fruit for the kingdom of God. Father, continue to use them, continue to stretch them, continue to uh, gift and and multiply their giftedness for the sake of the kingdom. Oh, but Father, please continue to love them. And Father, we don't have to pray that in, in wishful kind of thinking. We know that your promises are for them. And we know that Jesus died for them, and you are not going to waste the blood of your son. Father, every ounce of Jesus' blood uh, speaks very loudly on their behalf and ensures their entire eternal destiny. So, Father, allow them to be uh, people who feel the, the presence of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, and the love of God. Father, allow them to be used even here at Good Shepherd Bible Church. I pray that you would do a work in them. I pray that you would allow them to, uh, to actually serve in ways that other people can't for the sake of the kingdom. I pray that you would, you would move in Blacklick and in Pataskla and Reynoldsburg and in Gehanna because of uh, this wonderful team of, of, of gifted and qualified people to serve in this way. And Father, I pray for many who have heard the gospel today in churches like this across our city and across our, our nation, across the world. Father, I pray that you would bear fruit for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. May, may Columbus today take a step forward against the gates of hell. 
Father, may the work of your word and the fruit of your word, may it bear fruit into tomorrow that people might believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Father, attend your word even here tonight. Father, I want to thank you for the partnership that we have with uh, Isaac and Hannah Sir with Chroma Church and their desire to uh, start a network of churches that, uh, that helps fight the, the sex trafficking uh, uh, sin in our in our area father i pray that you would continue to use uh, their uh, spearheading efforts and even churches like ours to combat this kind of darkness and evil right around the corner from us right in the really the invisible portions of our of our city and in our neighborhoods father i pray that tonight we would uh, as we hear the word that we would not just be hearers only but that we would be doers that we would find ways where we can uh, allow the freedom that the gospel brings to help break chains here in our community. So, Father, fuel all these efforts for Christ's sake and for our good, and we pray these things through him, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, You can turn to Acts chapter 9 tonight. We have been talking at length uh, about the scope of God's grace, and it's kind of uh, a wide-open scope. If you remember, this is kind of even before the the Easter service. Uh, the, The scope of God's grace, we've been looking at three things primarily, that God's grace is for all. Uh, we're going to begin to see the, the edge lines and the border lines of God's kingdom begin to be erased out. Uh, and the uttermost parts of the earth are going to be reached uh, with the, the gospel of his grace. And we discuss that it's not just for all, but it's for the sake of life. That is, it's for the sake of eternal life. It actually has the, uh, the, the, the impetus behind it or the, the meaning behind it or the fruit behind it is the idea of transformation. Uh, We saw this in the life of Simon the Magician, who in one sense rejected this kind of eternal life, who turned back uh, to an old way of transformation. But we see this clearly uh, in the Ethiopian eunuch, who in one sense had everything, and yet in in, in a great sense forsook it all so that he might be transformed. Uh, And this is also for the sake of joy, uh, that really the, the whole point of God giving us his grace is that we might be satisfied in him. To quote a, a famous uh, pastor, John Piper, you all know the, 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 the name, uh, maybe his famous quote, uh, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Uh, and that kind of an idea, that the gospel of grace is for our joy. It's meant for our good and for our delight in our Savior. And so tonight, uh, I'm going to I don't often give my, uh, ser- my sermons titles, but I, I kind of want to tonight as, uh, by way of picturesqueing uh, this text for us. I call it Grace Versus the World. And some of you sports fans specifically uh, might know my love for sports and especially local sports. Uh, we have taken on this, uh, as Ohioans, this mantra, and you can see it all over the place, this idea of Ohio versus the world. This kind of laughable idea that that in one sense little old ohio uh could literally take on the rest of the world uh certainly we don't like mean that uh that we could actually take over the rest of the world maybe with military might but maybe we kind of feel that in some way that the world is at odds with us and that the world would gladly do war against us for some reason maybe it's because we're actually good at football and we're obnoxious about it maybe um, but you guys have all seen uh, the, the now famous uh, sweatshirt when we were uh, going through the 2015 title run as, as Buckeyes. You see the, yeah, I forget who scored a touchdown, but somebody had this, this sweatshirt, and it said, Ohio versus the world. And you're like, yes, amen, that's what it means to be a Buckeye. We're going to take on everybody. We don't care who's going to get in our way. And uh, what we're going to see tonight is kind of this grace versus the world approach. And again, you might be curious as to, well, can grace literally overcome the world? Is that something that is that powerful? Well, we'll answer that question, or we'll begin to answer that question, but certainly what we'll begin to see is that this world would love to do war against this idea of grace. And so uh, we'll see, it's actually one of my favorite podcasts. It's, it's 
kind of in lieu in some ways of, of uh, the episodes there. It's a great world, uh, great podcast. It's called Ohio v. the World, Ohio versus the World. It's an Ohio history podcast, and each episode is labeled Ohio versus fill-in-the-blank, and it takes on some sort of historical uh, approach to answering the questions of, like, Ohio versus flight, and it talks about the Wright brothers and the history there. It's, it's a great podcast. I really recommend it to you. But uh, today, we're going to look at several characters that enter into this story and we're going to see them, in one sense, uh, be face-to-face with the idea of God's grace. So tonight we're going to see Saul versus grace. And tonight we're going to see Ananias versus grace. And then we're eventually going to see religion versus grace. And we're going to see who comes out here in a three-round battle tonight. So grace versus the world. Let's go ahead and read our passage. Uh, our passage for tonight is uh, chapter 9, verses one through 22 of the book of Acts. Read with me, if you will. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anybody belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who are on your who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, "Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name." So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him said, "Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Amazing story. This Saul, later on in chapter 13, we'll get to there, would later become the Apostle Paul, as we would know, who wrote most of our New Testament. Saul and Paul would become really the world's foremost champion of God's grace. All throughout his writing, God's grace would become a theme that echoed and echoed again, and echoed again throughout his entire writing. And this is the very moment that Paul understood what it meant that God himself is 
grace. Romans 5.20, he penned these words that we loved, and even that I just prayed just a while ago, that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. You can say it in a Greek way, that grace super abounds. And tonight it's easy to believe that grace can defeat our sin Maybe in a theological category or on a theological quiz, we might say that grace is stronger than the world. But I wonder if you're like me tonight in reading this story, that it is tough to believe that sin, that that as much as sin abides within you, that there is even more grace for you in the heart of God than there is sin in your heart. That even in light of the things that you struggle with, all your life and continue to struggle with this week or maybe the new discoveries of sin that maybe somebody has pointed out to you this week and the, the, the future of what your sin might look like, the forecast of your sin might look like in the future, that there could be more grace that would meet you every time you are confronted with your own sin. It can be extremely challenging to believe in the throes of your own guilt and in the throes of your own shame to realize that there is a superabounding amount of grace for you in that moment in the heart of God. And so, yes, you might be fine with grace versus the world, but what about grace versus you? And I would confess to you that I find myself in the same place often. Yes, I believe there's grace for every single person in my church, but I have a very hard time believing that there would be grace enough for me. And maybe that's a admit, admittance to some level of spiritual pride that I somehow have the greatest sin. We'll talk about that. Paul certainly thought so. We'll talk about how that's true, and, and I guess in some ways not true as well. But Paul himself would become the foremost champion of grace, and we get to get a great look at uh, great look and see if the grace if grace is strong enough to defeat the world that maybe there's just hope for you tonight and i'll give you the end of the story there is hope for you tonight grace certainly has overcome the world grace is stronger than anything satan and all of his hosts have to throw at us and certainly you cannot stop the grace of god from, what you, uh, from, from reaching you as well, as we'll see in Paul. So let's take a look. Let's take a look tonight. Grace versus the world, round one. We get to see number one, Saul versus grace. We look, at, look at this in verse uh, one through nine. Saul still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. Remember, we picked him up uh, earlier on uh, in, in the book of Acts, and we kind of see him at the beginning of uh, Stephen's uh, murder, Uh, And we get a a couple um, uh, drips of Paul along the way, but really this is the first and foremost time we get to really settle in on the life and uh, ministry of of Saul, and it starts with hostility. So Paul is still breathing threats against the way. What an interesting way to say that. What an interesting way, and actually this is the first time and many times where Luke in the book of Acts is going to use this idea of talking about Uh, those who have been transformed by grace, those who belong to the way. It wasn't just this theological category for people. It wasn't just a quiz that they filled out. It became a way of life for people. It became a visible way that Christians were living uh, amongst the people here in this time. And if you remember, even from Acts chapter 2, that there was great grace among the people who saw uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus. As they began to live out their own uh, life as witnesses, there was great grace among them, and it formed this way, this capital W way. And we see that Paul was dead set against it. Saul wanted nothing to do with this way of living. Saul had ingrained himself in another way, a little W way. He had convinced himself that he had mastered his own way. And this is what he intended to stop. And so verse 4, and falling to the ground, he sees this great light and falling to the ground, he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Saul, you can, you can imagine even all the things going on in Saul's mind. He's going after the people who are committed to the way, and he hears this voice, this kind of personal uh, question, why are you persecuting me? Me. And that maybe even uh, have questions for us. Is Paul really at this point, how, how is it that Jesus would take it so personal that Saul was actually persecuting him? Well, we see this all over. If you remember in Matthew 25, uh, our Savior uh, at, the end of, at the end of days uh, is going to give to his saints those who have helped the poor and those who have uh, given things away in acts of love. Uh, and, and our Savior ends up saying, you've done this to me. And remember, those who are gathered there will say, no, we, we, don't, we have not done that to you. And Jesus will come back and say, to as, many, as much as you've done it to these here, your brothers, you've done unto me. That what we do in relation to Christ's body is directly reflective of what we do personally to Jesus himself, as if there's some sort of mystical union between the body of Christ and the living head, Christ himself. Of course, we pick this up in 1 Corinthians 6 as well, where Paul talks about sexual immorality. How, how is it that the church can give itself over to sexual immorality? That doesn't even make sense for the people of God. How, how can those who have been united to Christ then take their own bodies and unite them to prostitutes? How is that even, how is that even possible? We who are united to the very body of Christ, how can we then take our physical bodies where Jesus dwells and take them and, and say, yes, this is yours to have? No. You are Christ's, Paul would say. You are Christ's body. So here we see very plainly, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was ravaging the church, but he was ravaging our Lord, seeking to go after Jesus himself. So, Paul takes his personal question, who are you, Lord? And answers right back as if he kind of already knew the answer. And Jesus replies, I am Jesus. I am the one you are persecuting. You can imagine all the things all at once clicking in Paul's mind related to the resurrection. We don't have a lot here. This will be the first really account of, uh, of Paul's conversion. We'll get two more in the book of Acts later on. Paul will actually retell his side of his conversion. He'll give us a couple more details. Uh, but really, there's, there's really this one question here uh, recorded in Luke. Who are you, Lord? I'm the one you are persecuting. And you can imagine the, re the resurrection, the, the, the whole implications of the resurrection clicking in that moment. And you certainly have uh, the resurrection clicking in terms of the law. Oh, snap. He's back from the dead. This, this is the one who holds the keys to life and death. The, the, one, the one who literally has the power over death, he has come back. And, he's, and I'm, I'm staring at him. I'm, I'm here face to face with the one who literally holds judgment in his hand. Oh, the kind of fear and trembling that must have overtaken Paul at that moment. But oh, to see the nails in his hands as well, the scars in his hands as well. He must have at that moment processed realities of the gospel, what they have always told me about this one who has come in love and paid for our sins. It's true. It's true. See, the reality is, yes, you can see the resurrected Jesus and you can understand that he is the one who triumphs over death, but what you can't do is behold the resurrected Christ without seeing the scars of his grace. As one uh, author put it today, uh, well, uh, we'll go here a little bit forward. Christianity is the only religion whose God bears the scars of evil. Christianity is the only religion whose God bears the scars of our evil. And you can't help but think, as, as Paul was processing this revelation of Jesus, what all he must have seen and thought in this very moment. But you can imagine, but it, it clicked. Something in his mind clicked. Something worked. He saw the resurrected Savior and he said, I'm all in. I'm all in. It went from fear and trembling to instant, this is my Savior. Just like that. In a moment of nothing, he was on his road. He wasn't preparing his heart. 
He hadn't had a good time of morning prayer that morning. Paul wasn't looking for this resurrected Savior. Paul hadn't done anything at this moment to ready himself for this encounter. It happened in an instant. And yet conversion, we see conversion happen in an instant for him as well. Amazing. And as you would imagine, in verse 9, we see a little bit of the shock and awe that he must have felt. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. One of the main themes that Paul picks out in his theology as well is the idea of God being light. God being light in the middle of darkness. You can imagine exactly where that theme would come from in his preaching and in his teaching. Uh, later on, we'll read portions of 2 Corinthians who even talks about uh, the, the God who allowed light to shine out of darkness has shined into our hearts. It's a very picturesque description of his own conversion here. Paul was in shock of God's grace. This amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, or I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. Surely that is Paul's testimony as well. Oh, oh how amazing the transformation to see in this moment. It's, it, to me, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to even process because this, this conversion happens so instantaneously. You're almost wanting for just a little bit more of a description here because you want to see, see just the heart just unravel and then you just want to see the heart built up. But in this moment, you don't see a whole lot of that. It's just this light and it's just the grace of God and it's just the overpowering mercy of God in this moment for a, a horribly wicked man. And it's so powerful. It's almost like, in one sense, we too become kind of blinded to see all that's there because all we can see is the glory of God's grace at this moment. It's a powerful thing. So if this is round one, we see, oh, what a, what a throwdown, what a total knockout of a victory in terms of the grace of God. In a moment, the worst man alive, the biggest threat to the gospel, was overcome in a second. Oh, how powerful this grace of God is. But then we get to see here Ananias in this powerful grace here in verse 10 through 19. Here you have this Christian brother, this person just like you and me, saw the resurrected Christ, and I mean that in a spiritual sense, whose eyes were awakened to see the, the power of grace and the power of the resurrection. This brother who, in one sense, was ready to go, probably did have a great time of prayer in the morning, probably was in his own heart, had an understanding, a little theological category of grace, and yet we're going to see him, even at the very end of this, upended. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord, I'm ready, I hear you, send me, send me anywhere. Here I am, Lord, ready to do your service. Oh, what a great time of devotions this morning. Oh, Lord, send me anywhere you want to go today. It's just such a beautiful morning. Rise. Go to the street called Straight. Go to the house of Judas and look for a man. You may have heard of him. I don't know. Tarsus, uh, Saul, he's praying. Uh, Lord, <laughs> about that send me anywhere part, Lord, about, the, about the I am willing and I am able part. I don't, I don't know if you've heard. Maybe, maybe you didn't get the memo. Maybe you didn't get the daily report. Uh, maybe that headline didn't, didn't cross uh, your news wire this morning. <laughs> I love his answer, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about how this man, how, how evil, how much evil he has done against your saints in Jerusalem. And now he has the authority to bind me up, to take me back to Jerusalem and murder me. Are you, are you sure? It's an amazing thing how easy ministry is when we put it in a category of law. It's amazing how much we sign up for ministry for those who we think deserve our ministry. 
It's, it's easy. We'll, we'll go to, the, we'll go to the, par- the parts or the portions of this world that make sense, right? Lord, send me, send me anywhere. S- send me anywhere. Those, those good people down the street, I'll, I'll minister to them. Those people with very li- little problems, right? All they have, like, the only thing that they're, like, really wrestling with, like, what's your biggest thing that you're wrestling with? And they're like, patience, right? It's always patience. Like, I can help that. I can do that. Lord, send me to that person. Oh, Lord. But how often do we raise our hands when the Lord sends us into a place that upsets our apple cart of deservedness? How easy do we raise our hands and say, Lord, I will, I'll minister to people that I know, I know for a fact they don't deserve anything from your hand. I, I know for a fact these people despise you. I know for a fact these people hate you. And because of that, I know that they hate me. I know I might not make it out alive, but Lord, I will go. This is your kingdom. This is your grace. I don't deserve my next breath. So Lord, in my moments of ministry, if you call me to die, just like Jesus died, if you called me to suffer, just like Jesus suffered, I'll go. I'll go. A heart that has been transformed by the grace of God does sign up for that ministry. Not that it's easy. It's spirit-given. That's a spirit-filled yes, it is. But oh, how easy it is for all of us to sign up for ministry that's based on our own categories of deservedness. So easy. So easy. Ananias would eventually go. He hears the word of the Lord. He is a chosen instrument of mine. He's my instrument. He's, my, he's mine. Don't mess with him. He's mine. And I'm going to send him before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And also, he will suffer. He, he, he will be like you as you suffer and die and go to him. He will suffer and die and go to others, just as Jesus, our Savior, suffered and died and came to us. This is the pattern of our ministry. This is the pattern of our life. This is, this is what it looks like to have a cruciformed life, a cross-shaped life, is to be on the go, dying to self, and successful in ministry to others, not because we ourselves are something, but because the grace of God is everything. And you see in this moment, it clicks for him. The grace of God clicks for Ananias. He goes, oh, I remember. I remember. I'm the chiefest of sinners. I remember that day when God said, you are a chosen instrument of mine. (laughs) I remember that day. I'll go, Lord. In verse 17, brother Saul. Brother Saul. There's no clear indication here that Ananias understood the grace of Jesus when he addressed Paul. His first word was this grace-filled address of brother. It's amazing. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to regain your sight and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Everything I've got by grace, I'm here to give it to you. It's amazing. This is round two. Grace takes that one as well. Powerful moment here. Where a brother like you and me functionally living out his Christian life by law, is able to recognize the grace of God and say, oh yeah, that's right, I remember. And once again, successful ministry. The third thing we get to see, the third, oh man, third round, religion versus grace. Religion versus grace. And this really comes from the back end of our passage here tonight and uh, back half of 19 through the end. This is an amazing moment of grace here in the end of verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Let, let that just sink in for a little bit. For some days he was just hanging out with the disciples at Damascus. Nobody had planned that. Nobody had structured that but the Lord. Nobody could make that actually work out but the Lord. It's amazing. That's an underrated statement in our Bible. And he immediately, 
Paul immediately, boom, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the Son of God. And all of those who also lived their entire life by law, bought into the system, bought into uh, the, the promise that power has made them, all of those in that moment look back at Paul and say, wait a second, you're no good. We know who you are. Aren't you this one? And you're supposed to be here right now on a mission, an exact opposite mission. What are you doing, Paul? And yet he grew stronger. In all that he faced, Paul came to grips with the reality of grace at work, and he is the one who actually receives strength. Remember, it's the grace of God, the power of uh, God's promise that gives strength. And Paul here is fortified and strengthened certainly in his theology, but probably also in his resolve and also probably in his ministry to confound those who lived in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. What an amazing apologetics lesson that must have been. Right off the heels of conversion. All that Paul knew he had to now put through the filter of the resurrected Christ. Oh, that would, be, that would just be amazing. But in every step of the way, we see grace conquering. We see grace at work for those who never asked for it. We see grace twerking the hearts and minds of those who have thought about it all the time, right? We get it. We know it. And yet grace just twists a little bit more. Says, now go here. And you're like, ah, that makes me really uncomfortable. And grace continues to bring ministerial success, even when it looks a lot like death. Even when it looks like things are going backwards. Even when it looks like things in one sense are even becoming hypocritical. Grace turns things on its head and drives the kingdom forward. And so for the rest of the time, I, I really, I, I, I did some study in, in Paul's theology of, of grace this week, and I, I want to just kind of bring some of this in. And, and I want you to realize, first and foremost, um, and we throw this phrase around that God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And, and that, that is so true. And I, I want to put that in the room. It's, that's so true. Uh, but maybe a better way to say it is that we are ministers by grace, in other words, the only reason God has called us to ministry and called us in this ministry is because of his grace. It's not because we asked for it. It's not because uh, we, were, we were on the right path and he picked up what we were putting down. It's not that we sought out for God. It's that God in his grace has sought out for us. God in his motion stopped us on our road when we were enemies with God. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We are witnesses by grace but that also means we only minister in one way. We are ministers of grace. The same thing that we have been transformed by is the only thing that we have to offer people. It's the only thing that we minister with. So we are ministers by grace, but then we are ministers of grace. And Paul is this wonderful exemplar of that very thing. Paul himself is constantly deflecting of himself, and eventually he'll end up saying, I count everything that I have as a negative, as a, as a complete loss, as a hindrance, except for knowing Christ. That's the only thing I have. Knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, it's the only thing that we have. And so those who have been shown the, uh, shown the grace of God the most are the best ministers of his grace. It's so true. Those who are the best recipients of God's grace, are the best ministers of his grace. Don't be surprised when you feel really small that God begins to use you. Happens all the time. But I wanted to look here at a couple, couple things, and I'll just, I don't have time to kind of read them all here for you tonight. In fact, I forgot my sheet of all the texts, so I'll just look it up. We don't, we don't have much time to, to discuss it, really. Um, but I want to talk about, uh, you, let me put it out here for you so you guys can start writing down. Some of you are note takers, so here you go. Take notes. Here you go. Look, fill it up. Fill up your page. Fill it up. All right, let me, let me look some of this up. I'm sorry, I didn't bring my, I printed it out. It's downstairs in my basement. If anyone wants to run and go grab it, they can go do that. Don't do that. I'll read a couple of passages here. And think, think about 
uh, I have here listed a couple categories where Paul highlights the grace of God at work in his heart, and certainly he picks it up in conversion. I didn't, what I didn't list here uh, are Paul's retelling of this conversion story in the book of Acts, because we'll get there. But you can hear very clear descriptions of his understanding of God's grace at work in conversion. In case you're wondering, what's Paul's mind on his conversion? Well, he gives it very clear here in, in these passages. First uh, Timothy 1, 13, th- 13 through 16. I'll read this here for you real quick. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. It's amazing. So Paul champions the grace of God at work in his own conversion. Uh, Secondly, he he champions the grace of God at work in his life, in his own suffering. We read this uh, passage just the other week uh, here in our our, uh, liturgy here. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what he says there is like, only let your manner of life be worthy of the grace that you have been shown. You have been shown grace. Only let your life reflect that. And that's, I mean, that's really pretty easy. <laughs> Don't take any credit for yourself. Give all the credit to God for all that he has done in love for you. That's what that, that's what that means. Only let your manner of life be worthy. Let it reflect the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to you uh, and I see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you and I had and now here. Uh, and now here that I still have. Paul's understanding of grace is that we get to suffer, and usually like, that's really, really strange, but understand what he's saying. Our, our lives are really cruciformed in this wonderful motion where we are free from the burden of self. Oh, how glorious that is when we don't have to live our life by law in all that we do for God, when we get to live by grace and all that he's done for us, it is a wonderful thing to suffer and to be cruciformed in that way, to be ungripped from the grip of your life. What a, what a wonderful thing that is. Oh, that we would be counted worthy, not just to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That's amazing. Paul gives that all to the grace of God. We'll turn to Galatians because he talks about his own commissioning, which is really interesting, especially on the heels of Ananias. Listen to this. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, talking talking about you, Ananias, wasn't you, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Later on in verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. This is the grace of God. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own uh, age among my people. So extremely jealous of, uh, zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Amazing. He, this was before I was born in his commissioning. And then grace and ministry. I won't read that passage, but essentially he's talking about how we have this treasure, the gospel, God's grace in jars of clay. We, we are not the answer, yet we have the light of God's glory shining in our hearts so that through the cracks and the brokenness of our 
clay, we can see Jesus Christ in his light. And so we don't practice cunning ways of packaging the gospel. We don't do ministry in any other way, but we hold out the light of Christ and we say, this is who Jesus is. That's all that he is for you. This is what he has done for you. We simply hold out the grace of God and we say, it's Jesus and only him. It's amazing. All the way throughout Paul's ministry, we see grace as the primary root of everything that he is. And we see plenty of fruit as a result. So my friend, you might read all this and think about all this and be like, okay, well, that's, that's fantastic. And what you should begin to see is that God in his grace is this conquering love for people like you and for me. It's a love that stops you dead in your tracks, who shines his light on you and says, this is all that I have done for you. This is all that I am for you, regardless of who you are. And if you feel like there is any sort of sin or some sort of disqualification holding you back, you should look at Paul himself and be like, can it get any worse than that? And look at the grace of God and say, surely there's enough space for me. So 100% grace versus the world? I don't think you stand a chance. God's grace has come to you. God's grace is here now. And God's grace will be extended for you until he comes. And you say, well, can God's grace transform me? 100%. 100%. And I don't pretend to think that all of us are, in one sense, going to be glorified in this one day, like Paul here seemed to just be like radically converted and his life changed like night and day. That is a, that is a wonderful, special moment of conversion. It's even kind of hard to to, to really use that as a perfect example for conversion because a lot of us, we take time. What happened in a millisecond here on the road to Damascus, for a lot of us, takes time. And praise God, even as Paul said, God is patient with us. He's patient with us. And God's doing that work. But my friend, yes, absolutely, the grace of God is stronger than your sin. It is. The grace, uh, all that Jesus is, he has conquered sin and he has conquered death. And though you still struggle and that you still wrestle, the grace of God is constantly being held out to you and is a constant resource for you to return to. Go back. Keep returning. Keep finding his grace more and more. And as much as you bring your sin, I'm confident that you will find even more grace as much sin as you bring to the table. So my friend, wherever you're struggling with, bring it. Bring it and bring it out into the open. And you say, well, I'll be seen as weak. Praise God. You say, that might bring suffering. Praise his name. See, that might bring some level of hardship upon my life. 100%. Oh, that you not only believe in him, but for the sake of Christ, get to have your life ripped away from you and you get Jesus' life handed and packaged to you for free. Life with God, life eternal. My friend, what? who cares what you'll suffer? Who cares what it'll mean? The grace of God is securing and it beats the world and it beats our sin. It beats the death that we so fear and the judgment and the shame that we fear. So my friend, you can come to this table. The grace of God is strong enough for you. If you, don't, if you need a clear, visible sign, it's right here. His blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. His body broken for you. All of God's judgment poured out on this moment. There's no more wrath left for people like you and for me who continue to struggle and to wrestle and wonder if God's grace is enough. And yet we have yet again his grace. Yet again, another one of his promises that whatever sin we bring to the table, next week there will be more. It'll cover that too. My friend, when it comes to grace versus the world, grace always wins. And praise God, you can come. Let's pray. Father, we, our hearts are full like Paul's in the sense that we feel like we are, the, we are the greatest sinner. And certainly, Father, it's not a contest. But oftentimes, Father, we feel unworthy of your grace. And Father, you would smile back at us and say, yes, yes, that's what grace is. That's the very definition. That's why I came, because you are unworthy. 
But Father, also that's why Jesus came. He has come and he has made us worthy, not because of righteousness that we have done, but because the righteousness that has been done by Jesus himself. And so Father, we see this table before us and we take and we eat knowing that your promises and the the promise of the strength of, of your grace is enough for us. And so Father, we even come hobbling in our faith we, we don't come even fully faith-filled in this moment. We, we come even slightly doubting, wonder if this week there's enough forgiveness found in you, wondering if this week there's enough perfect assurance this week. And yet by, by your word, and even by this sacrament here, Father, we're reminded, yes, 100%. There's enough love. There's enough forgiveness. And it's all here, and it's all for free. Come, take, eat. So, Father, I pray for the one who is struggling with their sin. Father, I pray that they might find freedom. Who, like Paul, was addicted to his own way, and yet you stopped on the road. Father, I pray that you would continue to stop us on our roads and allow us to see the light of your grace. And we pray these things through him. You guys know that... Can do.